You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're talking about the lines between our identities and the internet and how personal data we generate within apps and devices we use every day is blurring those lines. With me today is Dr. Andrea Metwishan. She is the Associate Dean of Innovation and Technology and a Professor of Law and Engineering at Penn State. Her work with the Internet of Bodies examines the legal, security, and social ramifications of Internet-connected devices that transmit data about and directly from our bodies. And it asks about what data and devices look like and mean when they are not in our hands, but more personally and permanently interacting with our physical selves. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea. Thanks for having me. So look, this, you know, it feels a bit like a sci-fi moment. And I will tell you, I'm one of those people that's always been pretty vocal about not having listening devices in my home. I also do not have a smartwatch or, uh, you know, any type of um, device that records my body to my knowledge, um, with the exception of I use my phone at times um, to count steps. So, and it's always troubled me, right, that our bodies, the internet, cloud, you think about AI and technology on this level, they're really starting to sink and tell us more than ever about ourselves. And we're also in this super unique time of being, you know, we're recording during the COVID, you know, crisis, which is unprecedented. And people are talking about contact tracing apps and those types of things. So before we go too far um, on this topic, which is absolutely fascinating, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, talk about your background, your work, and how you came to coin the term, the Internet of Bodies? Sure. Uh, So I graduated law school at a time that was in the heyday of the first tech boom in the late 90s. And the kinds of classes that I teach now with respect to technology simply didn't exist then. So uh, I got into law practice as a corporate lawyer, and it was really my clients that pulled me in all kinds of interesting directions in terms of um, dealing with innovative marketing campaigns that used Uh, web-based marketing and the data collection aggregation and repurposing that came with that. Um, I worked with financial services clients who were trying to figure out the best ways to ensure the integrity of financial information that was being transmitted through markets and with the technologies that existed within exchanges. Um, And uh, I worked with startups who were building new cool things that were trying to get their footing and, um, their first rounds of financing, um, and also established companies who were starting to build investor relations websites. And the Securities and Exchange Commission was one of the earliest agencies to be active in providing some guidelines and guideposts for what kinds of information, particularly with respect to investors and consumer-facing information, needed to be available in the ways that it should be presented. So that was some of the the legal uh, the legal minutiae and the the categories of 
um, questions that I dealt with. And in particular, I wrote a lot of privacy policies and a lot of terms and conditions of use. Um, and it's that work that uh, perhaps is most obviously still visible in all of my scholarship today and the the lessons that I learned from trying to uh, be on the, the corporate side of it and then thinking through what um, the dynamics that I was part of in the 90s um, have grown into uh, at this point in time down the road. Uh, then I started teaching um, and, and got to, to research uh, all of these issues. Um, and I've been on law faculties uh, in computer science, uh, uh, faculties, um, and also I taught at the Wharton Business School for years. So I've sort of uh, been defined by the the technology connection and the research rather than um, the labels of the particular school or the particular role. I do want to get to um, what you call the Internet of Bodies. I want to um, have you take us through it, um, understanding what it, you intend that to mean. You said there's three different generations mm -hmm. of Internet Bodies devices. I can tell you earlier in my career, I had the opportunity to work with a manufacturer where we embedded digital certificates in pacemakers so they could get patient data and potentially do life-saving updates to those devices. So I have, you know, it's been, it's not something that's super new, right? As much as think, people may yeah, think it is. That's but right. I, exactly. Yeah. Love to get your perspective. Sure. So uh, the, what I'm calling the Internet of Bodies, which is a, a term that existed uh, a little bit in art circles in other contexts and was uh, occasionally casually thrown out by uh, uh, tech philosopher uh, types in the UK. Um, in this case, what I mean by the term Internet of Bodies is the policy and legal implications of the use of the human body as a technology platform. And I divide this concept of the Internet of Bodies into three generations of technology. The first generation involves body external devices, the Fitbits, the Apple Watches, the uh, augmented reality goggles, or the glasses that film where we go. All of that is a body external device that uh, has a feed to the internet, uh, has push-pull capability, um, and it is monitoring some aspect or augmenting some aspect of the human body's functionality. The second generation are the types of devices that you just mentioned, the pacemakers that have certain components of the system that rely at this point on software updates um, and on complicated and important uh, security measures that are uh, built by design, hopefully, um, into the product and uh, that preserve the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the product's information and functionality. Uh, another early second generation body embedded device is the cochlear implant, um, where a portion of the device is surgically implanted into the patient's ear. And uh, now cochlear implants, for example, have Bluetooth capability in some cases uh, and other kinds of internet enabled uh, functionality. But 
apart from those early second generation body embedded devices, we have new kinds of body embedded devices, including uh, the trend of some employers encouraging their employees to chip themselves so that they can swipe their hand to enter buildings or use their embedded chip as part of an authentication protocol with various hardware uh, and and software, uh, other devices. Um, And uh, there are even recreational embedded devices. Uh, For example, one device uh, that I was reading about has uh, a functionality of telling the user, in other words, the person in whom it is embedded, which direction is north at any given point in time. And so you turn your body and when you're facing north, you uh, get a feedback uh, response from the device in your body to tell you that you are facing north. Um, And uh, these kinds of devices, when they engage with their users, they talk about extended frames, Um, for example. So what we're dealing with in this uh, set of Internet of Bodies devices in both the second and and the first generation are not only traditional medical devices, but also optional, recreational, or occupational enhancements. And that's part of what's shifting, is that uh, while the traditional medical uses have long existed, what we're seeing now is the merger of the commercial internet of things dynamics with these body attached and body embedded devices. And then the third generation, which is least developed, but already on its way, is the idea of body melded devices, meaning devices that are built directly into the brain, and have live read and write capability with the cloud. And the vision involves healthy human brains to assist with basically augmented processing. So if you view the human mind as uh, hardware and the same way that you can augment you know, like the memory in your laptop with putting in uh, extra capabilities. That's the idea here Uh, with some of the proponents of these models, uh, such as Elon Musk's Neuralink. um, The idea behind it being that particularly as uh, the world is driven by machine learning and enhanced processing capabilities, Um, in other cases that the human mind needs a little bit of a kick to be able to keep up and to uh, be on an even playing field with the world that we're building otherwise. Now, I'm I'm happy to unpack the assumptions inherent in that, which I'm not sure are correct, but uh, that's the thinking of it. So in the private sector, we see Uh, the arrival of startups and uh, R&D in places such as Neuralink. In the public sector, we see uh, the Department of Defense through DARPA experimenting also with extending brain processing uh, for the purpose of enhancing performance of soldiers. 
And uh, what we already have in medical contexts has been sometimes life-altering for the patients that benefit from these technologies. Uh, we have currently many patients at this point who have uh, embedded chips in um, their uh, the the base of their their brainstem to help them with uh, limiting physical responses to Parkinson's, for example, so tremors and other uh, types of um, physiological uh, responses. Um, but that use is a little different from what the uh, Neuralink and other models are proposing. Uh, which is uh, embedding chips in a different piece of the brain, but the earliest third generation Internet of Bodies technologies are already here and in use in medical contexts. Uh, so the, the potential for life-altering medical treatment in positive ways is tremendous, but the potential for things going wrong is also tremendous, particularly in optional enhancement. Yeah, I would say a, a couple of things. And actually, um, if you go way back, Kurt Vonnegut wrote on this subject and a couple of his short stories, um, mm-hmm. um, which, which, is, which is fascinating because it's, it's, uh, what he wrote was a bit dystopian. And there are, of course, a lot of ethical issues that we need to think about um, when we're thinking about enhancing performance. We also, again, are not necessarily in the legal framework or a regulatory framework that we're going to do, that we're going to leverage the positive potential of these devices whilst balancing the risk of the negative outcomes, you know, the unintended or even some of the um, malicious intended consequence. It, it's, it's, you know, you're getting into um, what I would say Terminator land, you know, for, for our listeners, when you're thinking about, you know, physically enhancing someone's performance with some type of brain um, modification that that's real time, you know, feeding in and out of the cloud. Um, it's kind of scary in a way, right? Yeah. And, and honestly, I was surprised at the direction that my own research took because I did not, even though I follow technology very closely, I did not realize the extent to which these technologies had already taken root and were in advanced stages of research and development. For example, when I looked through the U.S. PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office's site to see what has been patented in in this area. There are a bunch of patents that signal to me that uh, significant investment has already happened in many of these uh, directions that we're talking about. So uh, with second generation devices, there was an airline that had patented a digital pill, a concept that was approved by the FDA several years ago. Uh, But this digital pill for the airline was intended to put a sensor in the stomach of uh, flyers to provide real-time feedback to presumably the crew to allow for cabin and experience calibration uh, in real time. and so in one way, you see that the airline is potentially trying to get the benefits of uh, expedited direct information without engaging with the passengers themselves. But on the other hand, <laughs> engaging with the passengers isn't necessarily a bad thing um, because uh, the accuracy of what these technologies are measuring is part of the challenge here. Technology is 
always only as good as the the sensors and the the code base and the skill of the people who wrote the code. Um, and what we see from the Internet of Things and from years of uh, security evolution is that even the most sophisticated uh, best staffed companies with the smartest people working at them, they're still humans that are writing this code and building these products and, and designing the builds. And so you're always going to have mistakes. And sometimes you have some, some blind spots in the way that you build and security flaws happen to everyone. Um, and the key is to try to identify what the attack surface is, what the risks are, and what the process will be in meaningfully addressing the problems when they occur. But uh, just because something has more technology in it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best way to interact with humans in a particular context. Um, and that's sometimes what we lose sight of in our enthusiasm for building all the things. Yeah. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, IOT implementations have become ubiquitous, right? There's trillions of devices globally. You talk a little bit about that it's a better with bacon problem, which I think is a really interesting way of, of bringing, making it real for people, right? <laughs> and, and even though we've all seen, you know, the break into your car, you know, your car system and make it do something or, you know, hack your, you know, your, your smart thermostat or hack your prosthetic or even your cochlear device, what are, do you think, are the real risks today? And, and how can people, how can the average citizen, right, the average person help to mitigate them? And, you know, I am not, as I've said many times, a believer. I connect as little as possible to the internet in my house. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a meme that goes on about cybersecurity professionals that we wish we were still living in an age where the internet didn't exist a lot of the times. But how do people, the average person doesn't believe that, right? The average person has a lot of tech connected technology in their home. So how should they think about protecting themselves? Yeah, so that's a challenge, uh, partially because of helping to educate uh, people with the instincts that are intuitive to security pros who uh, do risk modeling and attack surface analysis day in and day out. Um, but also, uh, you know, speaking as someone who, who studies security, it, it's a little bit of a killjoy to always know what's going to go wrong ahead of time. And uh, I think uh, many people, um, and, and honestly, myself included, enjoy seeing the the gee whiz side of technology. You know, I'm still, I still get excited about uh, the fact that I can, <laughs> I can play games through the internet with my friends in Australia in real time. I think that's amazing. You know, as a kid who grew up in the eighties, that's, that's still mind blowing to me, but uh, the better with bacon problem that you referenced um, it uh, sort of is a play on the idea that some chefs really love throwing bacon bits on everything. And um, for those who love bacon, that's a bonus. But if you're a vegetarian, it means that the stealth bacon bits have now destroyed your meal. And so the idea of thinking about what functionality you are trying to achieve and recognizing that each extra degree of connectedness adds a degree of risk and a degree of possible compromise. Because as you add additional Bluetooth connections, additional uh, interrelated functionalities that rely on other technology devices or connect to your network without segmentation, uh, you expand that 
attack surface for someone to poke around and, and uh, wreak havoc in, in your systems and in your life. Um, and that kind of uh, analysis is a secondary analysis that uh, many consumers kind of don't get to because they think about the first order analysis of, oh, gee, this refrigerator is going to send me a text message when I forget to get milk. And that's kind of cool. But uh, the second question is at what expense? Um, do you really need that text message? Or, you know, maybe the better solution is to get a refrigerator with a glass front. And in the morning, as you're walking out the door, you can visually identify that you're missing the milk. Um, but that's the better with bacon problem. And this interacts with a second problem that I identify um, that I call the magic gadget problem, which is consumers over enthusiasm in wanting devices to be magical, to, to do everything and to work exactly as intended. Um, there's a wonderful book uh, by an author named Gregory Milner um, called Pinpoint um, that talks about the number of times that people have died because of GPS malfunction and the overtrust that consumers sometimes place in our gadgets um, can lead us to ignore the external signs that we're perceiving in low-tech ways that give us a heads up that something's not quite right. Uh, so in, in the book, Milner describes, for example, situations where um, drivers blindly followed directions up steep mountains, got stuck and lost phone connectivity and couldn't exit and things ended very badly for them. Um, so that over-enthusiasm and over-trust is a second problem that impacts both the Internet of Things and these body embedded and body attached devices that we're engaging with. And then you layer onto that some of the traditional security concerns about companies shipping fast and hard and uh, not building in security by design and not pausing to adequately test and audit their code um, and build human processes into place for vulnerability identification, third-party report acceptance, and uh, having incident response mechanisms that make sense for the types of products that, that they're shipping. These are classical problems that security professionals have been talking about for 20 plus years. Uh, so nothing new here, but the, the thing that's new is that the failing to anticipate uh, the kinds of security problems that already exist or will exist now can potentially have physical ramifications when human bodies are at risk from the code uh, and hardware malfunctions that are on the other side of it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think most consumers aren't savvy enough to do that, or they genuinely don't care. I mean, I have a lot of fun with my other half on this um podcast because he's the ultimate gadget guy if he could buy if he could connect anything in this house this house would be totally online and i'm all, I, I spend my days saying no right but he wouldn't <laughs> care if his car is sending data back because he'd say well it's going to be predictive and tell me when it needs repair and he wouldn't care if the fridge is telling us to buy milk because we're busy and we forget so i think people don't think enough about the implications of convenience and we're in a busy world so i can't blame them right? Yeah. Um, the catch is when your 
car has a security flaw that allows for a remote attacker to exploit uh, a vulnerability and, uh, you know, say, take control of the sound system and cause an inside the car hazard or disable the brakes or uh, kill the, the steering or otherwise manipulate the functionality of the canvas in, in the car. And so we've already seen those kinds of security vulnerabilities that are exploitable potentially with those additional degrees of connectedness. So if every car is a computer on wheels to an even greater extent than is the case now, basically all cars are already computers on wheels, um, you get into a different kind of safety analysis in purchasing and thinking about how to operate the car than the safety analysis that say our parents would have performed two generations back. Truly fair. We have so much more to talk about with Dr. Matwishan that next week we will release part two of this episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea. I hope you will join us to hear more about her research on the Internet of Bodies and also the exploration of the legal and security questions surrounding these incredible devices. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.